With your Bibles open, uh, please open them to Psalm 25, as was read earlier. Now, I can still remember the day like it was yesterday. It was close to about 20 years ago. My wife and I had just landed in Reno. We were with a couple that um, had also been in Spokane and were coming back and lived in Fallon. And uh, so we were, they, they asked if they could get a ride with us. And so the four of us were making our trek from Reno back home to Fallon. And it was night and very dark with a little snow in Reno. And I was driving and as we approached Fernley, we noticed that the snow began to get really crazy and thick. And I don't know if you've been in one of those deals where things seem one way in Reno and one way in Fallon, but a completely different way in Fernley. And I don't know what is over there that makes it do this. But it was crazy. Huge flakes. Crosswind blowing. Blizzard-like type of conditions. And, and as we were going through in this dark and snow everywhere, absolutely no visibility. The only thing that I could see was the white line on the side of the road. Have you ever had that deal where maybe it was raining hard and all you could see is that white line? That's where I was at. And so I kept my focus on this white line. And I didn't even know if a car was coming at me or in front of me. All I could just see and know and trust is the white line. Keep a steady, slow pace. Keep my eyes on that white line. Now listen, trusting all of that and a lot of prayer could get us to foul. And, and why I mention this, why I bring this up, is because that's Psalm 25. Psalm 25 is David in the dark days, in the blinding days of things that are happening all around him. To take his visibility away, he doesn't know what's going to happen next. He's not sure what's coming at him. He's not sure if he's going to make it, uh, you know with his feet moving forward in terms of what's coming next. Now, we don't know the context. We don't know what it is that's making it so hard on him. But let me point something out to you. Notice here in verse 2, he says, my enemies. It's possessive. Almost as if to say, They're my enemies, like they're not anybody else's, they're mine. They're just kind of my kind of enemies. The enemies that, for whatever reason, are attached to me. He's familiar with them. He says, my enemies exult over me. Verse 3, people, these are people that deal treacherously with David. Verse 16, he's lonely, he's afflicted. Verse 17, there's troubles of heart. Verse 18, he calls it my trouble. Verse 19, my enemies are many. Verse 22, all kinds of troubles. Now those are dark, snow-blinding days for David. Blizzard days that make David wonder, what's going on? What exactly is happening here? Things used to be one way, and now they're completely different. What's going on? You know, we know from this very psalm, I mean, 
David is saying to himself, I know the right answer is to trust God, but how do you do that when life seems that blinding? David needed to find the white line on the side of his road. One of the commentaries I loved the most this last week was from James Boyce. He no longer is alive, but his commentaries speak on. And for some reason, he and I seem to see the psalm exactly the same way. And so I really enjoyed what he had to say. Some call this psalm a sob of sorrow. Like David is, you know, distressed and so distressed that he can't even see that there's a white line. But like Boyce... I see this actually as David in a calm, mature way, looking at the blinding snow that's coming in his face, but handling it in a mature way. This is David responding to the blizzard with maturity, with resolve and calm and patience. There's a word for that. Trust. Trust. Look at it there in verse 2. Oh my God, in you I what? Trust. Oh, that we could all get to that place where we could just say, I trust the Lord. I just trust Him. I just trust Him. In all matters, in all circumstances, in every situation, I just trust Him. That's David here. And there's another thing to to notice here. He speaks all throughout here of waiting. So what you have here is David learning to trust. And what you have here also is really how to wait for God to answer prayer. And David's going to show us. Like Paul in Philippians 4, David learned the secret of contentment. He learned how to trust God in snow-blinding dark days. How? In the school of trust. And that's where we'll be. You say, well, I call it that. I'll show you. That's actually how David wanted us to understand this psalm. He said, how do you know that? Because there are a handful of psalms that are written as an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay? So they have the Hebrew alphabet. Each line, or sometimes like in Lamentations, in fact, you get the, all of Lamentations is this way, but you get the uh, chapter 3 of Lamentations, and it's every third line, right? And it begins, and it takes you through the Hebrew alphabet. Every, every line begins that way. This is an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. The first letter of each line in Hebrew is a different letter going through the alphabet. Why? So this would be easier to learn. He did it for learning. Psalms 9 and 10 is an art acrostic. Psalm 25, of course, already mentioned. Psalm 34, Psalm 37, Psalm 111, Psalm 112, Psalm 119, and Psalm 145 are all acrostic psalms. And so this 
is an acrostic, and David wrote it to be a teaching lesson, and the theme is trusting God, and so therefore, this is the school of trust. Psalm 25. Now that's a lesson the Lord is constantly trying to get his people to learn. Familiar verse, Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your what? Heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. He has to tell us that because we don't naturally trust the Lord. In fact, you don't naturally trust anybody, do you? Psalm 37, verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. Proverbs 22, 19, so that your trust may be in the Lord, I have taught you today, even you. In other words, trust is something that you need to be taught. Learning to trust in the Lord. That's always a lesson the Lord has for us in every generation. David here in Psalm 25 says to the Lord, verse 4, teach me your paths. In verse 9 he says of the Lord, he teaches the humble his way. And in verse 12, he will instruct him in the way he should choose. Notice, there's a lot of learning that has to take place. Teach, teach, instruct. David's then in a learning position with the Lord. That's his relationship with the Lord. Learning. And the thing he needs to learn the most is how to trust the Lord. Now let me show you one other thing before we get into this psalm so that you get, you really get the message here. His message, what he's saying. There's a key thought that's very significant in a, in a I believe in understanding Psalm 25. And it's, this is really sort of a generic prayer, but in another sense, uh, and it's just as, as you examine it, it he's, I mean, he seems to be all over the place when you first read it. And it. At first for me, as I was going through this, it was very difficult to find the thread. And what is, where is he going? He's all over the place. And I almost called this the everything prayer. But part of that is because there's just tremendous depth everywhere in all kinds of directions, and it's just incredible. I mean, he prays about everything. But let me show you the key in understanding something that David says, because he says it four times. Look at verse 2. Do not let me be ashamed. Look at verse 3. None of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. And then verse 20. Do not let me be ashamed. Why is David so worried about being ashamed? What does it mean to be Put to shame by God. I mean, as though he's worried about God 
you know, kind of embarrassing him or something. What's he saying? Sometimes when we use that word shame, we mean to be embarrassed. As though David is saying, don't let me be an embarrassment. Sometimes dads say improper things. And one improper thing to say to your children would be, don't let, don't be an embarrassment to me and the family. As though you're trying to keep up some type of image. Is that what he's meaning here? You can, you know, we can be embarrassed of Jesus and embarrassed of sharing the gospel or as one who identifies with the narrow truths of the Bible. You can be embarrassed about that. I don't believe that that's what he's saying here. James Boyce explains what ashamed means in this context. Listen, quote, the unique biblical idea is that of being let down or disappointed or of having trusted in something that in the end proves unworthy of our trust. In other words, what David then is saying is, don't let it be. I have put all my eggs in your basket that in the end it'll be Something that God is not there for. I let you act as my follower. And then at the end I decided I'm not going to show up at your coronation. I'm not going to show up at the day where you're thinking you're going to get everything. All the reward or whatever. Let me show you from a few other passages of Scripture what this word means. Romans 5.5, 5, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, who was given to us. Why would any Christian be concerned about being disappointed? Romans 5 is saying the Christian is a person who has placed all his hope on the truths of the gospel as to be real and lasting and that will never be abandoned by God. How do we know that we will never be abandoned by God? Because he put his love and the very Holy Spirit in our hearts to make that point. So that, To become a Christian is to have this shame, this disappointment removed from us. So that when he says in Romans 5.5, hope does not disappoint. You put your hope in the Lord. You put all your eggs in the basket. You're not going to be disappointed. You become a Christian. That has happened. He's not saying, I really hope it works out. 
He is saying it's proper hope because it will work out. And you know how he's going to make sure it will work out for you? He's put his spirit in you. Hebrews 12, so that when you don't follow him like you're supposed to, guess what happens? You get disciplined. Now that's actually a massive point to the gospel, having this disappointment removed. Listen to Isaiah 28, 16. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. Uh, what is that stone? First Peter 2, Jesus Christ. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. He who believes in it, that is in the stone, will not be disturbed, literally will not be disappointed. Will not be ashamed. Again, Isaiah 49, verse 23, And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Those thoughts in the New Testament from that passage are connected with the gospel. He said, can you prove that? Yes. At least three places. Those, that very verse is quoted about our salvation. Isaiah, or excuse me, Romans 9.33, Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone, Jesus Christ, because she didn't pursue salvation in him by faith. Listen to this. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Romans 10 verse 11. That's our word, disappointed. Romans 10 verse 11, right after saying, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then we get Isaiah 28, 16, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, will not be put to shame. Later in 1 Peter 2 verse 6, same thing, same quote, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed will not be put to shame. What's this saying? This. Those who have put all their trust on God will not be abandoned by Him in the end. That's what David is saying in Psalm 25. In other words, that is what David learned in the school of trust. that the one who puts everything into Jesus Christ, who trusts him with his entire life, will not be put to shame, will not be abandoned or rejected by the Lord. David writes this as a mature believer who seeks to trust God in all things. That is the direction of a mature Christian. So why then is David worried about disappointing God or God abandoning him? I'll give you a few thoughts. First thought, I mean, 
David is surrounded by enemies, okay? There is that. And then secondly, David is conscious of his own sins. We see that in verses 2 and 15 and 19, he's surrounded by enemies. In verses 7, 11 and 18, he's conscious of his own sins. And so when you, when you put this all together, here's why David is really thinking about God abandoning him. You have the enemy around the world. You have the enemy throughout the devil. And you have the enemy within your flesh and that, that has that remaining sin in it. That's what would make David feel like God's abandoning him. I mean, what if our enemies prove to be too strong for us and we fail? What if we take a digger? I mean, will God abandon us in shame? And, you know, what we see is actually it's David's enemies that will be put to shame, not David. The unbelievers. Why? Because... David trusts the Lord. Now, how do you get to that place of trust? Three lessons in the school of trust. And if you learn them like David, you'll be able to turn your problem into praise. Your trouble into trust. And your struggle into sweetness. Here's how you get to that place of trust. Point number one, rely on the truth. Rely on the truth. Lean on it. Depend on it. To trust God is to take Him at His word. It is to rely on that word. To trust what He says is to trust who He is. You say, are you sure about this is, a, this, this is about trust. Again, look at verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. His soul is down. It needs to be lifted up. How? Verse 2. O my God, in you I trust. This is about learning how to trust in God. How? Believe what is true about God. Rely on that truth. What truth? Six pieces of truth David relied on to get him to trust God. Let me give them to you. First, first truth, waiting on God isn't giving up. Let me say that again. The first piece of truth that he had to learn, waiting on God isn't giving up. Sometimes we think that way, don't we? You're just telling me to wait on God? feel like I'm not doing anything. I need to be doing something. Life is hard. You've got enemies around. You have to preach this to your soul, beloved, that waiting on God isn't giving up. Notice verse 2. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. You know, when you say do not let to God, what you're saying is I'm not going to try to fix this. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to let you handle the friction in my life. I'm asking you, Lord, do not let any of it have victory over me. Let it be something that you do. 
I'm giving in to you, O Lord. See, is that really what he's thinking? That I'm giving in to you, O Lord? Look at verse 3. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. See it? He's saying, I've, I've come to the place where I realize that waiting actually is good. That there's value in waiting. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. David has put himself in the waiting position. Those that wait on God to do something about it will not be abandoned by God. Will not be put in a shameful place of regret. Second piece of truth that David relied on to get him to trust God is this. God's paths for you are holy ones. God's paths for you are holy ones. Verse 4, look at it. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. In other words, teach me your kind of paths. I'm really good at making my own paths. I've tried them and they don't oftentimes work real well. So teach me your kinds of paths. Now, what does it mean to follow the Lord's ways and to be taught His paths? Ways, notice ways and paths. It has to do with the will of God. What's God's will? Lots of ways of describing His will, but when you talk about His paths, we're talking about you know life direction. We're talking about a life course. In First Thessalonians four three, when talking about life direction and God's will, he puts it like this. First First Thessalonians four three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then later in chapter five, verse eighteen, that you would give thanks in all things. And so, just right there in 1 Thessalonians, it's a life lived that you could describe as pure and that a person could be thankful to God for. God's paths for you are holy ones. Holy ones. That's when you know you're on the right path. That's the way of the Lord. Boy, do we in this day and age where there are so many lures to unholiness. We need to be reminded of this. We need to rely on this and not be duped by the thinking of the world that says a little sin is okay or a little impurity here or there is okay. No. God's paths are for you, our holy ones. That's the way of the Lord. By the way, the word for holy means set apart. To set yourself apart, then he says here, from the natural way. To be set apart from the world's way. To set yourself apart from the sinful way, the twisted way, the corrupt way. 
So that's the second piece of truth. Let me, let's see a third piece of truth that David relied on to get him to trust God. Here it is. Humility opens the door to learning. Humility opens the door to learning. Look at verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me. This is David admitting his need to be taught. Now, David was a smart guy. If you really doubt that, if you question that, read the Psalms. Most of them he wrote. There's a lot of smart stuff in there. Okay? He's a smart guy. Go take a look at how he, you know, strategized on how to take down the enemy. David's a smart guy. Humility opens the door to learning. Listen, beloved, anytime you admit to others and yourself that you have a need to be taught, it means that you are confessing a lack in your life. Think about it. Anytime you admit to others you have a need to be taught, you're admitting that you lack. That's humility. You're admitting that you're a needy person, a spiritual needy person. And if you're going to learn in this school of trust, you're going to have to always open the door to learning. You're going to have to be okay with being a pupil, with being a student to God. Do you see yourself as a student before God? as a pupil, as somebody who's maybe in primary school? What's a student like? Think of, let's think about this here. What is a student like? A student comes under the authority of one who is a shaper. Okay? Let's think of it that way. A student comes under the authority of another, one who has authority over them. He's he's one who depends on another to guide them, to direct them in knowledge, in in better life patterns. This is a person that's basically admitting, you know better, and I'd like you to help me in that. What a great prayer. Lead me in your truth and teach me, Lord. Ever open your Bible that way? Lead me in your truth and teach me, Lord. I'm not coming here to read your word, O Lord, to show you how impressive my knowledge is. I'm coming here to to pray this prayer. Lead me in your truth and teach me, Lord. You know, you pray that way and the Lord will send people into your life to bring you His Word. The one who trusts God is open to that. See, So many of us live life like we have all sorts of answers. That's not how David lived and it's not how God calls us to live. 
And we wonder why people don't come to us for advice or insight or wisdom or some light to their path. Humility opens the door to learning. See, This is the fourth piece of truth that David relied on to get him to trust God. And that is this. Sovereign salvation includes sovereign timing. You say, is he, he has salvation on his mind? Look at verse 5. For you are the God of my salvation. For you, I will wait all the day. So you say, well, maybe he's talking about, maybe he's just talking about, you know, salvation in the deliverance way. Well, he is, but I believe he's, his attention, his focus is here on his soul. One very important title that God has is God of my salvation. When you talk about salvation, it's important for us to remember it happens because he wants it to happen. The people that get saved are the ones whom he wants to get saved. You can have two people hearing the same message and one person, it hits them in the heart with conviction and the other shrugs his shoulders and says, I I don't know, I have whatever. I'm not sure really even what that short guy was talking about, right? I don't know. God put me, it's always helpful to remember, God put me in this place when he saved me. I can wait because you made me yours, O Lord. You did the harder thing already. What was the harder thing? Just saving you. That's the harder thing. Whatever your enemy is, saving your soul was harder. Only you know how bad of a sinner you really were when God saved you. You know, you reflect back on your salvation and and it always helps you get realigned with God's timing. I mean, he saved you just in time. Have you noticed that? I mean, who knows what life would have been like had you not just come to the Lord at that time. And he saved you so you can trust him. There's a fifth piece of truth that David relied on to get him to trust God. And that is this. The immutability of God has stood the test of time. The immutability of God, it's a big word, immutability of God has stood the test of of time. Just write immutable, sort of, and then write, Itty on the end, all right? Something like that. All right. Now, what does immutability mean? Simply means this. God never changes. God never changes. Let me say it a different way. (laughs) That God is unable to change. Oh, am I so thankful that that is true. That is the answer to today's confusion about same-sex marriages and all the gender stuff. 
God never changes. He said, well, those are, those kinds of views are the older views and now we have the newer views. God, just say it. Think it through. Work it through. God never changes. That's what the Bible teaches. In fact, he's unable to change. It is not that God has made the decision that he will never change. It is, it is nature that he will never change. That he's unable to. How crucial is that? I want you to think with me a certain way. I mean, all our lives as believers is about change, isn't it? We need to change. Romans 8.29 is to become more like Jesus Christ. And that's because so much of our character falls short of what it should be. It falls short of being like the Lord. Falls short of God's perfect moral standard. Aren't you glad that God never changes? I mean, think about that. The standard was this yesterday. Oh, now it's over up here. And then next week it's down here. That'd be so difficult. You want to just throw in the talent and say, I give up. He never changes. He's perfection. And he stays that way. Notice how though, verse 6. Remember, O Lord your compassion and your loving kindnesses, for they have been, here it is, from of old. In other words, history tells me, O Lord, that you have always been compassionate and showed love and full of kindness to all generations. That kind of love. Wasn't it love that made you clothe Adam and Eve right after they sinned? When they deserve judgment, but instead you gave them a substitute? You saved them from spiritual death by sacrifice for their sin? Wasn't it love that blessed Abraham with a son of promise? Wasn't it love that kept Isaac alive? That protected Moses as a baby? That gave Joshua a victory at Jericho, knocking down that wall? That gave Ruth a husband? Gave David victory over victory over victory. Love from of old. God's immutable love that never changes. A sixth piece of truth that David relied on to get him to trust God. Amazing grace covers his entire life. Amazing grace covers his entire life. Verse 7, Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember, remember me. For your goodness' sake, O Lord. Now all David had to do to help him trust God more is remember that all God's grace that exploded in love over his sinful past as a youth he had. Sometimes we have a hard time moving forward because we have a haunted past that just doesn't go away. 
You ever have that where you're like a recording? You just remember it and it, you, you reflect back on it. You think, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that thing or done that thing or looked at that thing or had this experience. If I could just rewrite history. And David here is saying, don't remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Cover them. Keep them covered. Keep them in the box of your grace. Isn't that good? Sometimes we have a hard time moving forward because we have that. Steve Lawson puts it this way. This was a request for God not to reward him for his sins of the past according to what he deserved, but according to what he needed. Mercy. As you, it's interesting. It's so interesting. You know, Psalm 103 says that God has, as far as the east is from the west, he has put our sins and he's forgotten them. And here we are always bringing them back up. Isn't that interesting? That God who is omniscient by grace wills to forget those sins. We who are not omniscient are always trying to bring them back up. Now, what did David need to get comfort? He needed to remember that God is good. We don't know what the struggle is. I mean, whatever the struggle was, I mean, whoever the enemy, whatever stage David found himself in with trial or testing or problem or circumstance, remembering that God is good makes him trust God more. We get good doctrine from the doctrines of grace that God is sovereign over salvation, which is tremendous. But don't forget, God is sovereign and good. He's not wanting to put you through some discipline to watch you squirm with dark delight. That's the wrong view of God. He does it to get you to put your eyes on Him like a good shepherd guiding you through it. See? He comes to you when you start to remember that past. And he says, here, take my hand. Let me guide you through this. He's like the, this is like, it's like the boy holding his father's hand during the long hours of a hunt. And he begins that hunt holding his father's hand with such great delight. It's almost as though he's pulling his father through It was so long and tiring after a while, he didn't realize, though, that he wasn't holding his father's hand anymore. But it was his father with his strong hands and arms who was holding him through. It's always good. It's always for God's goodness sake, by the way. He does all things to show us how good he is. 
He loves us learning that about his character. Why is this happening in my life? God is working something out in it all to show you that he is good. See, that's why. See, I wish I could know it now. Yeah, but if you knew it now, then you would not get the blessing that he has for you then. And that blessing is going to be greater in God's sovereign timing. Can I really trust that? You must. Why? Because he's good. So the first way for David to learn how to trust God was in relying on the truth. You and I need that too. Rely on the truth. Believe it. And you believe it actually. Maybe you might know it. You can quote it. You can even rebuke others with it. But do you rely on it? That's how you trust God. Secondly, Remember who you follow. Remember who you follow. For David to grow his trust in God, he needed to just remember the God that he follows. What's God like? What is God like? I love, what is it, Psalm 113, who is like our God? Who is like our God? In other words, there is no one like him. Okay, great, well tell us, than what he's like. David's already already revealed a bit of it in his prayer in verses 1 through 7, but notice verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. First, remember that God is good. Now we can't go past that one too fast. We've already sort of mentioned it, but let's talk more about it. He will lead you to green pastures because he's good. Second, don't just remember that he's good. Remember that he is just. That's what upright means. He's he's righteous. He he always does the right thing. Always has the right path for you. Always it's it's always fair because you don't deserve anything but punishment for sin anyway. And what you have in these first two are sort of a, the twins of like mercy and justice. That always go together together with the Lord. You know, people usually try to separate one or the other from God. We do it all the time. He is righteous, so you better lift up your standards. Or, He is good. He will always show grace and forgive and show love, so it doesn't matter what kind of standards. So wait a minute. But it's actually both. He's the one with the high standards and the high grace and love and goodness. God is both. He is good and just. Nothing says that stronger than the cross. Love from the forgiveness of sins, but justice and wrath from God against the sin-bearing, sinless Son. Think about that. He poured out His wrath on the sin-bearing, sinless Son. See, why did He do it? For justice. Anytime you 
cry out, that's not fair. Just think to yourself, he poured out his wrath on the sin-bearing, sinless son. What should he pour out on you who are sinners every day? But he did it for you. That you might taste and see and know that he is good in salvation. You see, God kept his standard and he kept his love there on the cross. He did both. So remember, you follow a God who mysteriously keeps both of those things together in a way that no man could. So you don't trust man, you trust God. He is the love you struggle to show when you're tempted to be so rigid and strict and unforgiving when that person blows it. He is the just standard you need to help that person understand that God is holy. With God, there is a clear right and wrong, and it does matter. Verse 8, therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. But that's not all David remembers about this God that he follows To trust him, David remembers thirdly that God is wise. Verse 9, he leads the humble in justice and teaches the humble his way. How does God impart his wisdom to us? 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17 tell us. Through his word. Beloved, this is why we are a Bible church. I mean, you can't learn how to trust God if there's no Bible teaching. No wonder so many people don't trust God. They don't really know Him because they don't know His Word. That's why we have flock, by the way. It helps us remember who we follow. You you know, you study on your own. You bring your understanding to that group. You share it, and then you find out if you're on target. And then you pray about it. You have fellowship over it. And then you go home and you sleep, right? Unless you've had too much coffee. All right? But all of that is just its what we do. Because we know that we need his wisdom. Fourth, David remembers that God is loving. Verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. David keeps the balance. Always love and truth. This is the Old Testament version of what Paul was saying in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection pressing on to just know him. What does he want to know? Love and truth. How love works itself through truth. Paul said it this way in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith Working through love. In other words, what you believe, working through love. Putting your doctrine through the filter of love. Dressing up your beliefs with the clothing of love. It is not that impressive if you have great doctrine and belief, but you don't love people. That's not impressive then. 
And so, remembering that God is loving, that's how you grow in trusting God. There's a fifth thing to remember that God is merciful. Verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. See, what's David, what sin is David talking about? He doesn't say. But I'll tell you, the more you seek to trust God, the more sensitive you're going to become to your own sin. And that is the statement of maturity, not the other way around. We live so backwards. We sometimes think, well, I don't really want anybody to see any weakness about me because they'll think I'm immature. Can't let them see my sin. It's like the guy that said to to another, hey, pray for me, I struggle with lust. To which the other guy said, you do? You, you struggle with that? The first, the first guy said, well, you don't? In other words, I'm so aware of this as a sin I just thought everybody struggled with it. Doesn't everybody struggle with this? Oh, that we would have more people that were sensitive to their own sin. Why? Because that's the way to increase trust in God. Think about it. Why is God going to entrust anything to you if you're just constantly sinning? The only way he's going to is if he's merciful, right? Yes, you have forgiven it all at the cross, maybe you say, but I feel it. There is sin in this flesh and I need your mercy always. That's good to feel that because guess what? He's merciful. Sixth, remember that God is gracious. Verse 12, who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Proverbs 1, 7. Proverbs 9, 10, same thing. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is the hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth. You say, why is this connected to God being gracious? Because God instructs us in the way we should choose. You fear him and he guides you, right? That's how that works. He's gracious. He responds to our fear of him. Seventh, remember that God is generous. Verse 13, he, his soul will, ab- will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. This is James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously. It's very important that we think of God as generous because he is. 
He doesn't just give gifts. He gives them generously. What's that mean? He gives them just over the top. Flowing, Luke 6 says. Ephesians 3.21 says. James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is given from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With Him there's no variation or shifting shadow. You remember that about God, who you follow, because life has a way of taking from you and breaking apart and depleting. But not God. And so that grows your trust in Him too. Remember an eighth thing about God, that He is faithful, or you could say committed to you. Verse 14, The secret of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He will make them know His covenant. Jesus told His disciples, To you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. God's faithfulness to you is that you get to see and hear and understand what He says in the Word. Revealed secrets. There is a faithfulness that God has to His own. Steve Lawson says it this way, The Lord confides in those who fear Him just as a person takes a friend into his confidence and reveals his secret intentions. This personal approach taken by God in revealing His covenant is only for those who reverence Him. End quote. In other words, there is a personal, intimate connection that He has with you because you belong to Him. In John 14, He says it that way. Verses 21 to 23. Remember a ninth thing about God. That is that he is strong. Verse 15. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Here is David, and he's been caught in the net, like a bird being caught in the net, an animal being caught in the net. And he's going to, no matter how stuck or caught we feel, we have to remember that God is a rescuing God, and he comes with strength. Through many dangers and toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. John Newton, right? So many traps that David's rivals had set for him, and the Lord rescued him every time. God's direction for David's life was met by God's strength. And the way there was by remembering God he followed so often we forget why doctrine is so important helps us remember who our God is let me give you one last way to get to that place of trust point number three and our last point reach out for help reach out for help what kind of help divine help what's that after all of that David just prays with some urgency You pray with urgency, right? Sometimes we call this supplication. And what David does here at the very end is he gives ten rapid-fire requests. They're so interesting. 
I'm going to give them to you. We're going to go real fast here. Let's listen to this. By the way, the Lord is never bothered by us asking for more, okay? Ask and you'll what? Receive, so why not ask? He loves that kind of prayer. What's David's request from God? Ten of them. First, for grace. Look at verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. David says, I know you see that I struggle with loneliness. I need your grace more, please. Second, pray for hope. Verse 17. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. David was more than practical. Yes, I'd like to have you take my enemies away, but there's an enemy here that nobody can see. What? The troubles of my heart. So he reaches out for help at that level too. For hope. Third, for pity. Verse 18, look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. David just keeps on bringing his sins up. I mean, did he have some serious sin issue? Send that guy a counselor or some psychologist or something. That's what the world would say today. But David says, no, I just need the Lord. He was just sensitive to his own sin. He was, he was convinced he was a sinner. Listen, you can't reach that place of trusting God till you see yourself the same way. Fourth, for forgiveness. Verse 18, forgive all my sins, all of them. Take the guilt. In Christ we have complete forgiveness of all sins. You say, so why do I, why do I pray that prayer then? Because you feel the weight of them every time you sin, don't you? You hate them. And what a what a better parent, by the way, you'll be when you deal with your own sins. What a better employee, a better boss, a better neighbor, a better husband or wife when you deal with your own sins. You say, how do you do that? Take them to the cross, to the Lord Jesus. Why? Hasn't he already forgiven them all? Yes. But do it to grow your trust and remind yourself, He's done it. Fifth, reach out to the Lord in prayer for, for, for vindication. This is a don't take matters into your own hands type of prayer here. Verse 19, look upon my enemies for they're many and they hate me with violent hatred. Instead of strategizing to get back at, at the enemies, David just says, Lord, you deal with them. You deal with them. There's a lot of them. David says, they hate me. How hard it is to go forward when you feel like all around you you have people against you. What do I do with the rumors? What do I do with the false accusations? I need to change the narrative. I need to fix the optics. No. No, you don't. What do I do with the the people that just don't know me and and they just and so they get it wrong? Well, reach out to the Lord in prayer so you can get back to trusting Him and He'll take care of those people. Sixth, 
He prays for protection. Verse 20, guard my soul and deliver me. There are enemies you can see and there are enemies that you only hear about. Potential enemies. David says, but you, Lord, you know them all. So keep me safe from whatever I need to be kept safe from. Seventh, he prays for compassion. Verse 20, do not let me be ashamed for I take refuge in you. What's a refuge? It's a spiritual bunker, right? I've come to you, Lord. Please keep the shame away. And he's asking for compassion for the situation. And then we have an eighth. He prays for an eighth thing, for integrity. Verse 21, let integrity and uprightness preserve me. He prays for integrity. You say, isn't that David's part? It is, but he's asking God to make his integrity be something that keeps him in the safe place. What is integrity? I'll give you a simple definition of what integrity is. Integrity is godly character on repeat. Okay? There you go. Integrity. And then lastly, ninth, for perseverance. Verse 21, preserve me for I wait for you. What's David waiting for? For God to keep him going. Preserve me. Don't let me be one of those that just checks out, that throws in the white flag, that runs away. For God to keep him going. Why? So that David can trust him more. So what do we take away from this? David went to the school of trust. How do you grow your trust in God? First, rely on the truth. And I ask this question, are you getting God's word into your mind? Are you getting sound doctrine into your mind? That's how you grow your trust. Secondly, remember who you follow. Are you washing your mind with the doctrine of God, with the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Spirit? Thirdly, reach out for help. Cry out to Him for the right things, the ways that only He can help you. He said, well, you haven't even touched verse 22. Did you forget there's verse 22? No, I didn't. Let's end with that. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all His troubles. Wait a minute. His troubles? I thought this was about your troubles, David. Why go there? Because David knows he needs the whole group to help him trust God. What an amazing thing that God has put you here in this church around brothers and sisters that struggle to trust him so that we can help each other trust him. Group success is personal success. And so, it always encourages me when I see a brother or sister in the Lord walking well. Why? So I can go around and boast. No. No. I wish I could get to that place. Honestly, so that I could be more like 
you in trusting the Lord so that I could trust the Lord to help you be more like the Lord, more like David in trusting the Lord. It's good that the Lord's put us here to this place. That's the school of trust. And I'm praying that we all just keep ourselves as pupils and learners that way and seeing the Lord take us deeper into trusting him that way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and and David having gone through all of this so that he could write about it, so that we could know about it and then just kind of make our life be like this. So Lord, as we look to being like this, just pray, Father, give us the help from all those around us who are leaning on you, Lord, and remembering you and reaching out to you. Lord, we ask you to do this for your glory so that our church would stay at this school of trust. May it be that we don't trust in ourselves, that we learn how to trust ourselves less and to trust you more. Will you please grow us this way? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.